1: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast, and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It was the month of April, 1998 and spring flowers were beginning to bloom in the quaint town of Neufchâteau, nestled into the gorgeous Vallée du Lac in the south of Belgium. It's an area where people come to get away and enjoy the fruits of nature, with hiking trails along flowing streams leading from one flowery village to the next. It seems like a very strange place to hold Belgium's most hated criminal, but his original arrest was linked to the disappearance of Letitia Delez from the nearby village of Bertrie and Neufchateau had jurisdiction over the case. It had been almost two years since the Tru's arrest, and there was a new investigating judge named Jacques Langlois in charge of the case as the previous judge, Jean-Marc Conrad, had been removed. Judge Langlois, as well as the King's prosecutor Bourlet, and police officers De Moulin and Adon, who you heard from in previous episodes, were toiling away in Neufchateau investigating the case and preparing for a future trial. Marc Dutroux was also busy at work in Neufchateau, preparing his defense. Like all defendants, Dutroux had the right to consult a file relative to his case. On the twenty-third of April, nineteen ninety-eight, Dutroux was in the Justice Palace of Neufchateau, looking over his files under the watch of two gendarmes. The Justice Palace is somewhat of a quaint structure right in the center of town built in the 1800s with a well-carved statue of an angel in front flanked by a double staircase leading to the entrance. Given the size of the sprawling case file, it couldn't be kept all in one place. A file De Dutroux was looking for was on a different floor, so one of the gendarmes guarding him left him with the other armed guard to go upstairs and fetch it from another repository. De Dutroux was unhandcuffed so he could consult the files and now it was just him and the other officer. He saw his chance and took it. he lurched at the unexpected officer with a hard punch and went straight for his gun. It worked. Suddenly, the tables had turned drastically. Dutroux was hands-free behind an unlocked door and armed with a nine-millimeter service revolver. He bolted out the door and flew down the inside stairs suddenly finding himself face-to-face with the deputy crown prosecutor. Without hesitation, he pointed the gun straight at the prosecutor's head while continuing his escape. It wasn't long before he burst out of the large public entrance into the bright light of day. He hid behind a wall nearby to catch his breath and saw a woman stopped in her car nearby. Without hesitation, he pounced and brutally carjacked her at gunpoint. Now he had wheels and was speeding out of Neufchateau into the thick surrounding forest. Dutroux had just achieved the impossible. Belgium's most notorious criminal had escaped.
2: Somebody who understands
1: emotions.
3: And I told them, it is very exceptional that somebody abducts two children at the same time.
1: Should have been the end of it in 1986.
4: But my God, it was just the beginning. I think Belgium was a paradise for perverts in those days.
1: Welcome to Le Monstre. I'm your host, Matt Graves.
5: C'est la stupéfaction dans l'hémicycle de la chambre
2: à la personne qui ne pouvait pas s'échapper. Pendant ce temps-là, Marc Dutroux, lui, roule vers le
6: Luxembourg. Il parcourt une
3: visite.
1: I'll never forget the day Dutroux escaped. It was one of those historic moments for Belgium, where everyone remembers where they were when they heard the news. The entire country was glued to their TVs and radios. From the north of Flanders to the south of Wallonia, everyone was holding their breath. How could this be? The country's most dangerous and hated criminal was armed and on the loose. All of Belgium's police forces were immediately deployed and both sides of border patrols in neighboring France, Germany, and Luxembourg were put on high alert. Surveillance aircraft were scrambled, including search planes and 16 helicopters. Police were retracing the steps of the escape. They knew Dutroux had burst out of the Justice Palace at 2.46 p.m., and there were several bystanders who witnessed the escape. One of these witnesses recognized Dutroux and gave chase, but when he caught up with them, De True raised his gun and the man ran for cover. The car he jacked was a grey Renault Megane model and it was last seen speeding out of Neufchateau, heading south into the forest. It had now been over an hour and the search was still on. Once again, Bruno Denis gives voice to what people were feeling in Belgium at the time. What can I say? I mean at this point people already weren't trusting the police. And so I hear in my car on the radio while driving that Dutroux escaped. Are you kidding me? The one guy in the whole country that shouldn't escape? It was embarrassing. It was like Belgium was a banana republic. I mean, you can't make up this kind of stuff because there was so little trust at that time. People were suspicious that the gendarmerie was playing games. While the public was rightly outraged, it was the victims' families and surviving victims that were once again failed by the justice system. Letitia Delez was at school when she was alerted of the escape. She burst into tears when she realized that it wasn't just a cruel joke. The Lejeune family went into hiding, fearing that Dutroux could show up at their house. The investigative journalist Douglas DeConnick and his colleagues felt similarly to the public, and wondered if there was something else at play here.
4: But that day, uh, for the first time in more than a year, we heard the voice of Michel Bourglaire on the radio very quick, I think only a few minutes after uh, Dutroux escaped, saying that um, he could confirm that Dutroux had escaped, that he had took a gun, but the gun was unloaded. And yeah, I don't know what to think about it, but a lot of journalists had the idea, why is he saying this uh, publicly so quickly? Afterwards, there were theories that um, the gendarmerie would have liked very much uh, open fire on Marc Dutroux. Nobody would have complained. But it would have been the end of the possibility to, uh, to interrogate Marc Dutroux. I don't think Michel Bourlet uh, suspected the gendarmerie of wanting to, to kill Dutroux, but uh, he just wanted to make sure that it wouldn't happen.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile... True was trying to make himself lost in the forest. When he pulled into an unpaved road, the car got stuck, and he had to make a run for it on foot. A forest ranger saw him and immediately called it in. It wasn't long before he was surrounded and had no choice but to surrender. It all ended as quickly as it started, and after three hours of stress and disbelief, the country breathed a sigh of collective relief at the sight of DeTru being brought back into custody. Both the ministers of the Interior and Justice immediately tendered their resignations as the government quickly tried to draw a line under this embarrassing episode.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
5: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
1: When things settled down after Dutroux's escape and capture, everyone returned to Neufchateau. The investigating judge, Jacques Langlois, had the unenviable task of bringing the case to trial. The French and Belgian judicial systems are very different to what we're used to in the Anglo-American world. An investigating judge replaces the function of a grand jury, ultimately deciding if there's sufficient evidence of guilt to warrant a trial. He or she wields considerable powers including the issuing of warrants, seizing of evidence, and whether or not to take the case forward. In the end, an investigating judge really determines who is being charged and the overall shape of the trial. It took no less than seven years since the arrest of Dutroux to bring the case forward. For the families of Julie Lejeune, Melissa Rousseau, Anne Marchal, and Effie Lombrix, and surviving victims Leticia Delez and Sabine Dardenne, seven years must have felt like an eternity. Eventually, Belgium's trial of the century got underway.
0: The procès de Marc Dutroux tant attendu par la Belgique s'est donc
1: ouvert ce matin à la Cour de Belgique attend, il débutera lundi celui de Marc Dutroux le pénophile.
0: And hier verwachten we toch ook een aantal betrokken partijen,
1: advocaten It was March 2004 at the Court of Assizes in the city of Arlon in Belgium. The first day of the biggest trial in the history of this country. A large field close to the courthouse was cleared to accommodate the over 250 media outlets covering the trial. In total, there were three judges, 14 civil parties, 15 lawyers, 24 jurors, over 450 witnesses, and four defendants. These were Marc Dutroux, his wife Michelle Martin, the accomplice Michelle Lelievre, and corrupt businessman Michelle De Dutroux was led into the courthouse under heavy guard wearing a Kevlar bulletproof vest. The four defendants were seated in a specially constructed bulletproof glass cage in front of the courtroom. I spoke to a broadcast journalist from the French TV channel France 2, named Yasmina Farbert, who was dispatched to Belgium to cover the trial.
6: I was a senior reporter for the France 2 channel when I was assigned to this trial of Marc Dutroux. We were three or four journalists. Uh, which is not so often in France to to be many journalists to cover a trial. So this was a really big, big case for us. Even in France, the story and the case of Marc Dutroux uh, had a big, big retentissement, big echo for for us in France. We were really shocked about what happened at this time. Uh, so in the in the spirit of the French people, it was also very important to hear the, the end of the story of Marc Dutroux. So I dived into the dossier and the horror of the facts. And the first reflex is to introduce Marc Dutroux as a monster child killer. But I usually strive to avoid simplistic narratives in my work. For example, I had the opportunity to cover the trail of two famous serial killers in France, Guy Georges and Patrice Alegre, and they raped and killed women. The facts were terrifying. However, during the trial, we found a bit of humanity and fragility in these guys, even if their actions were dreadful. But in the case of Marc Dutroux, I must say that I never found an ounce of humanity, nor in the attitude neither in his eyes. Um, quite the contrary, this strengthened our opinion that there was nothing redeemable in this man. For example, Marc Dutroux told the jury he was the victim. He said that he protected the little girls from a terrible danger. But what is more terrible that happened to his victims? We had to listen to him till like you feel sick. He never second-guessed himself or showed any form of regret. Uh, During the trial, I remember, he tried to appear like an intellectual, very proud of himself, with his little glasses, his suit, his little notes. I remember when he talked about his childhood. He said that he had no ice cream during terrible summer holidays. Imagine what it feels f- for a kid, he said, and so uh, when you listen to this, you are a journalist, you are in the audience, but you think you are dreaming or making a nightmare, so that's the the memories I have of this guy behind uh, this window, very quiet and very calm, and even you know that he fell asleep the first day of the trial, so that was really crazy and really. I was stuck by the dignity of the parents and the families. Really, you had to keep your, your calm because he was just unbearable. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. This man is the first time in my life and I made many trials. The first time in my life, I say, okay, you, you can change this guy. And maybe it's the picture of the monster.
1: When the trial finally kicked off, there was, however, an important absence. Gino and Karine Rousseau, the mother and father of Melissa Rousseau, boycotted the entire trial. They never accepted how the previous investigating Judge Conrad had been removed from the case and were unhappy with how his replacement, Judge Langlois, had put together the trial. In an open letter published by the national newspaper Le Soir, they wrote, quote, because of the limited scope of police investigations and forensic examination, we do not know all of the truth about the tragic end of Julie and Melissa, the exact circumstances of their abduction, and the possible and not yet revealed complicities from which Detroit and his associates could have benefited. Unquote. I asked the investigative journalist Douglas de Konig about the Rousseau's decision to boycott the trial.
4: Well there were, from their point of view and from a right point of view, there were too many unanswered questions. They had been arguing with the team of Jacques Langlois for years, having all kinds of questions that every normal person would have had, I think, going from Hotel Brazil, the, the place where Julie and Melissa were kidnapped, where Jacques Langlois uh, failed to prove to make his point, because during a trial, jurors have the right to, to ask questions. And day after day, it was the jury that was leading the debates. And that was very strange for us, because they asked the right questions. I remember this one lady, number 12, it was the last of the their 12 jurors. She did this in a very neutral way, in a very polite way. She she took over the role that the Russos might have played in this um, trial. So, for example, the location where Julie and Melissa were kidnapped may seem a detail, but it isn't, because... Um, most people who know the investigation say that they have been kidnapped on the motorway in grasso There are a lot of witnesses talking about the Red Ford Fiesta. That's what the Russos think as well. Because I remember the first, I think the very first witness of one of the very first, I think. This was a, a very ordinary guy, a, a policeman. And they asked him, yes, sir, can you present yourself? Well, I, um, I'm a policeman and I work with um, a dog. The day of the kidnapping of uh, Julia and Melissa, he and his dog smelled at a pillow of Julie Lejeune and he went straight to the, the route, the Red Force Fiesta place, that's where right. it all starts. And yeah. then Langlois, a few days later, appeared with, um, it was very new in those days, but he, he brought in, in a PowerPoint with thousands of slides, just to trying to prove that no, 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 the dog was wrong. Um, his uh, He had found an old 90-year-old lady who was uh, sitting behind her window. She would have seen the kidnapping, and this would exclude the whole Fort Fiesta uh, thing. And then you had these jurors, they just uh, raised their hands and they, they started asking one question after another, and it was obvious that they didn't believe a word of what Langlois was saying.
1: You may recall that way back in episode two, I discussed the various witness reports following the disappearance of Julie and Melissa. There were several witnesses who claimed to have seen a red Ford Fiesta on the side of the highway under the bridge where the girls disappeared as well as another witness who claimed that someone in a red Ford Fiesta tried to kidnap her daughter and friend nearby on the same day. There was also another witness statement that conflicted with these sightings. An elderly woman named Marie-Louise Henrode, who thought she saw the girls get into a dark car on one of the side roads near the highway. The point here is that Judge Longlois decided to go with the elderly woman's version of events for the reconstitution of the girl's disappearance and subsequent investigations and therefore didn't pursue the Red Ford Fiesta. Not exploring the Red Ford Fiesta was significant and downplayed the possible existence of other parties. While the Rousseau's were not at the trial, surviving victims Sabine Dardenne and Letitia Deleuze were in attendance. The media scrum went into a frenzy when they entered the courtroom. When Sabine Dardenne took to the stand, she was very different from the 12-year-old girl we saw rescued from Dutroux's House of Horrors back in 1996. At 21, Sabine entered the courtroom with confidence. She faced her tormentor directly and spoke with courage and determination. Journalist Yasmina Farber brings us back to the scene.
6: We all remember the pictures of the liberation of Sabine Dardenne and Laetitia Delay, And Sabine crying in the arms of her parents and saying, I missed you so much. So the testimony of the survivors is always a high point in a trial because it puts the accused facing his acts. The death people can talk. The survivors are their voices. Sabine faced this severe test with such a dignity, such a bravery. She knew that when she entered the court, she would face Dutroux. So she decided to look him in the eyes to get rid of this problem and stress. She described Marc Dutroux like a perverse, like a madman. She told that Marc Dutroux was saying to her every day, you are my wife, you are my new wife. She also remembered his arrogance. He was so proud, for example, to say that He built the fireplace. He was proud of everything. I was really, really shocked when she told us, Dutroux told this little girl of 12 years old that her parents didn't want to pay the ransom and that he protected Sabine from people who wanted to harm her. Sabine, in the dungeon, she wrote letters. So Dutroux took the letters and of course, never send them. So he really was a perverse, and he tortured this little girl. It was a moral torture, more than a physical torture also, because she was raped also every day. So this was really disgusting. Michel Martin, uh, the, the wife of Marc Dutroux, said, said she was sorry, but... Sabine said that she she couldn't forgive because Michel Martin knew everything. She saw them, she saw the girls, and she saw the girls going down, going up in the rooms and going down and going up. So she couldn't forgive Michel Martin.
1: I've spoken with many people who experienced this trial firsthand, and every single one of them was in agreement that there was one particular event that marked them for life. It was the out-of-court visit of the actual dungeon in Dutroux's house in Marcinelle, where jurors, lawyers, journalists, and family members got to see the horror of this place firsthand, and victims Sabine and Letitia returned to the site of their appalling experience.
3: Today, victims, parents, and members of the jury were given a guided tour around a family home now taken apart by detectives. It was the site of the hidden dungeon that reduced most to tears. Locked in a tiny room, three feet by six feet, eight-year-olds Julie and Melissa starved to death. Julie's name is barely visible on the wall.
1: Only a handful of journalists were allowed to participate in the visit of de True's house. Douglas de was one of them.
4: To me, the moments who, who marked me as a... Uh, as a human being, of course, it would be the visit uh, of the, the cage in Marcinelle. This was, yeah, a feeling during two minutes because we only were let in a few minutes. Uh, in, in couples, I was with uh, a journalist of um, La Libre Belgique. We were just two of us for two minutes in that cage. And it was the fear, the, the feeling of, uh, how do you say it? It's uh, Experiencing by two minutes what what uh, Sabina, Letizia, and Mel- Julie and Melissa must have experienced is uh, there's no words to describe it. Um, you can't even you can't stand up in that cage. I'm not very claustrophobic, but I was at that moment uh, in a very intense way.
1: Again, French journalist Yasmina Farber.
6: Side visits uh, during a trial are called in French transport de justice. And they are quite rare. Obviously, it's a key moment in a trial. Um, To go down these stairs, to get down into the dungeon of Marcinelle, was a journey to the bottom of hell. Judges, lawyers, survivors, members of the jury, journalists, could touch the horror with their eyes. And I remember the footages that I used for the news. The bus arriving and how Sabine looked at the exterior of the locations. And of course, because she only knew the inside of it.
3: Facing up to personal horror, Sabine Dardenne and Letitia Delay, young women returning to the house where they'd been held hostage as children. What happened inside this house shocked a nation and left
6: four girls dead. Uh, The reaction of Laetitia Delay, who is going out of the dungeon, crying, c'est la merde, so it's shit, it's shit.
3: The memories too much for Laetitia. Reaching instinctively for Sabine, seeking comfort from their shared pain, Together, they spent 86 days in Dutroux's dungeon. In contrast, Dutroux showed no emotion, boasting about how he'd built the cellar, unmoved by the bed where he'd chained his victims or the pleading hand mark outlined on the window.
6: Um, The father of Anne Marshall told us when he came back, you don't put animals in this place, and he put children. My boss was one of the few journalists who had received credentials to go to the dungeon. I saw him come back so pale. He told us it was beyond anything one could imagine. He told that he saw on the yellow wall an inscription uh, with a black pencil left by one of the victims. was written, Julie. I was watching the live, And I cried. And Dominique ended the live and he left his microphone and he went to walk uh, and he didn't come to see us in the technical truck. He often told me that he was shocked for the rest of his life. And Dominique covered hundreds of trials and very difficult criminal trials. I came back in Paris after three or four months to cover this case. I told my my other boss the big boss I say okay for me it's over I don't want to make any trial again I I can't I just can't anymore I was sick really I I really felt like my body I I it was hurting everywhere It's difficult after to come back to life because when you know what people what they they, they live then it's a vision of humanity um, which is uh, hopeless. And I went also to, to war, war scenes, and, and I saw difficult stuff, but I think the, the Dutrou case uh, was uh, one of the most shocking stories of my life.
1: Hearing these accounts reminds me of something Karine Rousseau said to me during our interview. She said that although she and her husband Gino may look like normal people, they're severely injured in a way that's irreparable. They're handicapped by the knowledge of what happened to their daughter. Most of us are conditioned to avoid thinking about the unthinkable. But many people in the world don't have the choice because they've lived through the unthinkable. And it's always there, lingering. The only thing we can do is listen and empathize with them. And above all, try to stop the unthinkable from happening again in the future.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
5: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly so visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert snagajob.com where america goes to hire
1: to a certain extent the outcome for detrue at the trial was assured the evidence was overwhelming his wife Michelle Martin and accomplice Michel Lelievre were also clearly heading to prison. The fate of Michel Nihoul, however, was less certain. Initial DNA testing did not match Nihoul. however, over 5,000 hairs were found in the basement where Julie and Melissa were held captive. Judge Langrois refused to have them tested despite the urging of Michel Bourlet. According to prosecutors, they didn’t believe anyone else was involved. In fact, they were even accused of lying and saying that the hairs had been tested. At the end of the day, Nihou would be pivotal because he represented a link to a possible wider network. Thus developed a deep schism between the judge Langlois along with certain investigators, lawyers, and journalists on one side who wanted to focus exclusively on Dutroux and his direct accomplices versus the prosecutor Boulet along with other investigators, lawyers, and journalists who wanted to dig into the question of a wider network. Still today, when discussing the affair, there are two camps. What they call in French, the croyants, or believers of a wider network, versus the non-croyants, or non-believers. The schism became so entrenched that it divided friendships, families, and even changed the course of careers of police, journalists, and magistrates. The lawyers of Letitia Deleuze took the lead in making the case against Nihul, and therefore opening the door to a possible wider network. The charge they needed to prove was that Nihul was involved with the kidnapping of Leticia Delez. They started by reminding the court that shortly after being arrested, Dutroux's accomplice, Michel Lelievre, said that both Nihul and Dutroux wanted him to get involved with their human trafficking scheme. The plan had been to bring young women from Slovakia to Belgium, where Nihul would place them in prostitution networks. From there, Letitia's lawyers drilled into the hard-to-ignore circumstantial evidence, namely, the frenzy of phone calls between Nihoul, Dutroux, and Lelievre on the days leading up to, of, and just after Letitia's disappearance. The, quote, payment of $15,000 worth of ecstasy pills from Nihul to Lelievre and Dutroux on the day after the kidnapping And the testimony from Letitia herself that just after being kidnapped, she overheard a telephone conversation between Dutroux and a certain Jean-Michel where Dutroux had said, quote, It worked. Remember that Michel Nihoul was often also referred to as Jean-Michel. You'll recall that after Dutroux and Nihoul were arrested back in 1996, there was a public call for any other witnesses to come forward with information. The people who came forward were called the ex witnesses to protect their identities, X1, X2, X3, and so forth. In the last episode, we covered the shocking testimony of one of these ex witnesses named Regina Loof concerning Nihul's direct involvement with her abuse as a child.
4: I remember Jean Michel Niou as a very cruel man. He abused children in a very sadistic way. Sometimes, during these parties...
1: Regina the Loof was not called to testify at the trial because the investigation of her and other so-called ex-witnesses was suddenly shut down back in 1998. Rudy Hoskins, one of the gendarmes who worked on the team investigating Regina Loof's testimony, explained to me how this played out.
2: And uh, at a certain point in time, they started accusing us of, of being suggestive and, and, and stuff like that which was, for me, not the case. It was fact-based and also the interviews, everything was on tape. Everything was written down literally because we had people just writing every word literally down. So for us, there was no suggestivity. It was just asking questions and getting answered and putting it on paper. Um, And then at a certain point in time, they started accusing us. We were like suspended. And then they came with, they called it proof. We called it like forgery. And they changed the words. And then we said, hey guys, this is not good. What are they doing? Because this is not what we have written. And we still have that copy. Right. And that's not the same. And that's the one we signed, but that's not what we wrote. Right. And there were more of them.
1: Remember, Rudy Hoskins and his team were originally brought in to investigate Regina Loof and other ex-witnesses at the request of Judge Conrad. When Judge Conrad was removed from the case, a new judge named Jean-Claude Van Espen was put in charge of the ex-witnesses and he quickly moved to shut down the investigation.
2: We wrote like a memo uh, from, to, the, to the judge, to Van Espen, to say, okay, that's what we sent you. Now we see this against us, what's happening? Tell us, we want to see you, we want to talk to you. And he refused to see us anymore because Van Espen was a financial judge and we used to work with him right. a lot. Right. We were his preferred team. He was our preferred judge. And at a certain point, he didn't want to work with us anymore. He didn't believe us anymore. And he didn't want to receive us anymore. And also Van Espen, he was also the judge on the Champignanier case in 84, when he was a young judge, right. which was also a bit,
1: yeah, a bit worrying. So the new judge, Van Espen, was the original judge who oversaw the horrific Champignanier case in the 80s that Rudy and his team were now reinvestigating which meant the judge would have to overturn his previous decisions and have his judgment questioned if the new investigation were to yield results. This was a clear conflict of interest. There's another important detail about Judge Van Espen that Rudy and his team didn't know at the time, that he had a connection with Michel Nihul. He and his ex-wife reportedly had been friends with Nihul, and Van Espen had represented Nihul's wife as a young lawyer, and his sister was the godmother of one of Nihul's children
2: and then it started to getting worse and so we were like suspended we were put in a room without any cases anymore without any work and uh, we still we asked ourselves every day why what did we do wrong uh, we also got disciplinary proceedings against us I Everything they could, they Everything did. Everything
1: they could throw at you. They could throw at us. Why Why do you think they were doing
2: that? That's a good question. We still ask ourselves that question. That we came too close? Probably. Were there some things that uh, they didn't want us to dig up? Probably. Was it all true what you was saying? Probably not. Was it all true that the other X's were saying? Probably not. But some things were right. But what things that happened in that period were so strange. Um, I still remember driving home every evening and, and asking myself, are we followed or not? I slept with my gun under my pillow every night. Eh? Really? What the fuck did we do wrong? We just did our work. We checked facts, and now we're like the criminals of
1: Belgium? All charges against Rudy and his team were eventually dropped, and they were completely cleared of any wrongdoing. But after the case was shut down, Regina Loof was almost totally discredited as an unstable fantasist who made the whole story up. The majority of Belgian press aligned with the police and judicial hierarchy to declare that Regina Loof was making it all up. In an interview on Belgium's national TV channel, Regina's parents were portrayed as a sweet old couple who were shocked and ashamed about the delusions of their fantasist daughter. They completely denied her claims that she was abused as a child by a family friend, despite actually having admitted that this was true to police and that they knowingly allowed the abuse to continue for several years. According to the psychologist who led the council of five psychiatrists to assess Regina on order of the judiciary, it was determined that Luff had certainly suffered severe and prolonged sexual abuse in her childhood and that her testimony should be considered as credible. These shocking facts were reported by a small group of plucky journalists at the time. However, it was too late. The media cycle had moved on. The case was closed and Regina Loof was not invited to testify at the trial in 2004. Her testimony may not have been needed to convict Dutroux, but she was another link that connected Michel Nihoul to a wider conspiracy. On June 22nd, 2004, the verdict came in.
3: The most reviled man in Belgium, Marc Dutroux, was convicted of kidnapping and holding six girls hostage and of torturing and killing four of them. The 12-member jury, who had tried to in an army base for fear an attempt would be made on his life, had sat through three months of evidence, horrific details which will stay with them. It had taken just three days to consider 243 counts against Dutroux and against his ex-wife and two other alleged accomplices.
1: Finally, Dutroux's fate was known. He was sentenced to the maximum, life in prison. His wife, Michelle Martin, received 30 years, and Lelièvre got 25 years. The crux of the case now centered on Michel Nihou. The jury convicted him of drug charges related to the ecstasy trafficking. But they got stuck on the question of his involvement with the disappearance of Letitia Delez. Douglas de Konig takes us back to this key moment.
4: Mainly the verdict in Belgium starts with uh, guilty yes or no. And it's not just guilty of one crime, no. He divides the question in like uh, hundreds of sub-questions. And we were there with your list and your number. And it was number one, yes, yes, yes. Number two, yes, yes, yes. For maybe an hour, it just went on. And at a certain moment, we reached the moment where we had um, the accusation against Michel Niul being part of a kidnapping of Letitia Le. That was like the main point. But there it was 5-7. That means that the jurors um, don't want to take a decision. Theoretically, they have voted and seven have said guilty, five have, have said non-guilty. And in that case, it, it's the, the president of the trial who must answer the, the question, does he follow the majority or not?
1: So despite the 7-5 guilty vote, the president of the trial made the final call and decided that there wasn't enough evidence to convict Nihoul of involvement with the disappearance of Letitia Delez. It's incredible how close Nihoul was to being convicted.
4: But Just a few weeks earlier, you had um, the lawyer of Michel Lelievre. He was very close to the defense of Michel Nihoul. And during the trial, I had the impression that he was uh, working for Michel Nihoul, not for Lelievre. And so what happens at a certain moment, um, there's a guy, it was juror number five. He was a butcher from a village near Arlon, and he asked a question. But the lawyer of Le Lièvre said, uh, in his question, he has used this word, which means that he already has an opinion about the guilt of my client. And in that case, if you do that as a juror, they, uh, they send you away. Us as reporters, we were always, no, he didn't say that word. He, he didn't. And also these jurors as well were saying, well, what's happening here? And, uh, he's just inventing. Because they were warned not to ask leading questions. But this guy, this juror number five, he starts panicking and he takes his hands, makes the form of a, of a gun.
1: So juror number five made the sign of a gun with his hand in a way to say, shoot me now, which was an obvious no-no in the world of jury behavior.
4: That was the point when he had to be sent away, not because of the words he used, because of his stupid reaction. And afterwards, after the 5 7 verdict, uh, all these jurors were in the bar where we, as journalists, had had spent four months uh, having lunch, drinking beers. So we approached them and he said, Hi, uh, oh, yeah. We we said, We are not allowed to talk to jurors, but everybody knows it happens. And they all said the same thing. Uh, Neil has been saved by. Sending away number five because number 13 who replaced him, she was the one, she hadn't followed uh, the trial that much and it was her vote that decided that Michel Nihoul did not kidnap uh, Letizia Dele. More than one juror said if the butcher would have been there, it would have been 8-4. And 8-4 is guilty.
1: By the skin of his teeth, Nihoul avoided being convicted of involvement with the kidnappings, thus officially closing the door on the question of a wider network. By throwing out the testimony of ex-witnesses, not presenting the theory involving the Red Ford Fiesta, and the unwillingness to explore additional DNA testing on over 5,000 hairs, the judiciary sent a clear message. They had no interest in finding out who else may have been involved. Next time on Le Monstre, while the trial may have brought some closure, the aftermath offers more pain as accomplices one by one walk free and Mark DeTru makes his plan to join them. Episode 11 will be released on November 8th, followed by the season finale on November 15th. Stay tuned. La Monster is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeart Radio. Hosted and executive produced by me, Matt Graves. Produced by Thomas Rezimont of Bubble Sound. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on the behalf of Tenderfoot TV with producer Makeup and Vanity Set. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on the behalf of iHeartRadio with producer Trevor Young. Original music by Jay Ragsdale. Sound design by Cooper Skinner and Thomas Resimon. Mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Cover design by Trevor Eiler. La Monstra includes archival audio from Sonuma, RTBF archives, and CNN archives. Special thanks to Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Jean Savigna, and the teams at iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Find us on social media at monster underscore pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.